In this episode, I talk with Dr. Phil Parker, mind-body connection expert, about the automated programs that we have developed over time in our brain and their impact on our day-to-day life and ways that we can reprogram our thoughts to really take control of our brain. It's really time that we took that driver's seat when it comes to our brain wiring and move past the labels, um, the, the automated thoughts that we have about the whole thing. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Phil Parker. He is a lecturer, a therapist, and innovator in the field of personal development. It is my pleasure to have this conversation with him and share it with, with you. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Proudly ADHD at work and in business. I'm your host, Coach Kathy Rashidian, and I help professionals like you understand the science behind your unique brain so you can unlock that inner genius. Ready to transform your ADHD into your best asset? Keep listening. Welcome to another episode with Coach Kathy. Today, we have another awesome, awesome guest. So lately, I've been lurking on this uh, new app that's trending out there and those Apple users use it and it's called Clubhouse. And in this app, I feel like the world has just become so much more smaller. And I got to have this, this amazing interaction and also listening to this amazing expert, Dr. Phil Parker, through this, my journey, my new journey of, of discovering Clubhouse. And through this discovery, I, I met Dr. Phil Parker and I was like, he needs to come on this show and talk to us about mind-body connection. So he's an expert in mind-body connection, communication and language expert. He also has designed a number of transformational pro- uh, programs, which we'll talk into uh, as we go through this program. So welcome, Dr. Phil. And I love that you're Dr. Phil because my husband's like, you're interviewing Dr. Phil. I'm like, no, this one is the legit Dr. Phil. So (laughs) welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. So uh, those who don't know, and you probably can't see how tall I am. I'm about six foot five tall. That's one of the big distinguishing factors between me and the other Dr. Phil, amongst other things. (laughs) Awesome. So doctor, the reason I wanted to bring you on, I have been wanting to... Bring on an expert to talk about neuro-linguistic programming. It's a thing. And also to talk about mindset, to talk about managing our state, talk about the power of language, hypnotherapy, all of that stuff. So in a short episode, I'm going to try to get so much out of you here. So can you explain to us just a little brief explanation of what do we mean when we say uh, neuro-linguistic programming? Cool. So first of all, uh, my PhD was in psychology of health, specifically looking at addictions, uh, substance use, which is interesting to your audience because it's all about dopamine and that particular part of the brain that we know is of interest. And part of it was a new innovation in uh, treatment, which I developed for these people. And it was based partly on NLP. Uh, So NLP, what is it? I'm going to talk about what it is. And a little bit about its reputation and its research, because I think those are two important things. So first of all, NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, best described by looking at the three words. Neuro meaning, as you guys know, your brain, how your brain functions, but not just your brain, how your whole nervous system works. So the spinal cord, the nerves, every single cell in the body, of course, is connected in some way to the nervous system. 
controls the production of hormones, it manages how the body works, and also receives information from the body, kind of going, what's going on? Communicates within itself, and of course, it allows us to communicate with other people as well. So that's the N for neuron. L is linguistic, especially means language. But it's not just spoken language, it's non-verbal communication, it's the communication within the nervous system, it's how our thoughts and our words affect us and affect other people. So that link between neuro-linguistic, very important. And then the last thing is the P for programming, which comes because one of its founders, Richard Bandler, was a computer scientist. The other one was actually a professor of linguistics, John Grinder. But Richard Bandler, who pretty much, I think it's agreed, probably had or has ADDH, well, uh, very, very frenetic, hyper person, uh, computer scientist. And so he was looking at the idea of the, from the 70s, is the, is the brain like a computer? Because that's his thing. Uh, and the idea that a computer is only as good as the software that it's running, you know, the patterns that it's running, the programs it's running. And the brain runs programs. We all have that experience where classic example is you head towards work, and you find yourself, you've driven to the supermarket. You're like, oh, how did that happen? I haven't killed anyone. I've, driven, I've managed the junctions fine. I've done okay. But I'm all, obviously on automatic pilot. Or it could be when we get into an argument and we know it's happening. And we've had that conversation many times before with that person. We know it's going to end up. And yet we still do it. Or when we reach for a cookie, when we're on a diet. And these are good examples of programs which we've kind of inherited from our past and it would be great to change it. We have some programs that are great, you know, the way we learn, the way we communicate, all sorts of things are good, but some programs are sitting there running like almost like viral software and causing trouble. So NLP looks at this interesting juxtaposition of your nervous system, your language, how you speak to yourself, speak to others, how you communicate non-verbally and the programs are running and it gives you an opportunity to kind of hack into that system and go, right, are these the programs I want to be running? So that's that's the, the explanation. I, I said I was going to also quickly talk about some of the reputation of it. So NLP has a kind of a bit of a mixed reputation. It started off with a really good reputation in the 70s, really radical. People who started it were living in California in the 70s, counterculture, looking towards Eastern philosophy, lots of drugs, lots of, you know, wild thinking at that time. And so they threw out those stuff like traditional psychoanalytical models, structures, didn't work for the man, didn't want to work for the government. And they certainly didn't want to do any academic research because that was like, you know, that was where the squares were. So that was where they came from. There was a bit of research, but the early research wasn't very good and they didn't do much themselves because they weren't interested. And that was a problem because a lot of research means it's very easy then to go, there's no evidence for NLP working. There is actually now in the last 20 years, there's been a lot more evidence collected. I've done some research myself on NLP and we're starting to get a decent evidence base showing it does make a difference. But in the meantime, in the 80s, NLP kind of got used a lot from sales. So you hear people doing really shitty, crappy NLP techniques to try and get people to do stuff. And so NLP got a bit of a reputation of, is it something that manipulates people? And it's not true to say NLP manipulates people, but it is true to say some people use those techniques unethically to manipulate people. But you could say the same with anything people use pretty much any, any tool that has uh, the possibility for change or influence in, in good or bad ways. So it's not that NLP is good or bad, it's like who, who is using it and what is, what is the intention behind it? Are they using it to help you make the change that you want or are they trying to get you to do something? And luckily most of us are clever enough to know, work out which ones are the people to hang out with and which not. So there's a very brief overview of what NLP is, positive and negative about it, but it's, uh, generally um, becoming more accepted in the UK, for instance, 
uh, nearly a million pounds was spent within the National Health Service on NLP training for staff. So there's a lot of kind of use, particularly on a management level, less use of it, uh, interestingly, within the National Health Service on patients, but a lot uh, used on making the care of patients better. So it's an interesting place to be at the moment. I love it. And I just coming from 20 years of marketing background, I, I get that whole, the power of marketing, if done with integrity and, and the use of NLP is, is so spot on. And then I see the manipulation also, because I have that lens of a marketer and I'm like, oh, there's some manipulation going on there. So it's really, and, and I love what you said, the, our audience is now so much smarter. They, they, they can pick it up like that. And especially the ADHD audience. I feel like we have a lot of intuition. We just can smell it from a mile away. So so I want, let's talk about the benefits of it. So I am, um, through my coach training program, I feel like I was injected a, a, a few techniques of NLP, but I haven't gone through the full certification of NLP. So I, I have enough tools to just be just tiny bit of, you know, dangerous with it. But I was like, I need to bring somebody who knows it inside and out. So which is where you're coming in. And I want to talk about and I preach this a lot with my clients. I even did an episode about manage your state before you manage your goals. So let's talk about that state. What does that mean? Why is that important, doctor? Yeah, so it's it's probably one of the most important things anybody could learn. And one of my big things, and you probably have it the same, is when I was at school, I learned lots of stuff, most of which I haven't used since I left school. But they didn't teach me how to deal with difficult relationships, tricky bosses, disappointment, criticism, you know, all that kind of stuff. We just didn't get skilled in that. And so anything that helps you to resolve that is really powerful. And states is probably the best thing to know about. So what is a state? A state means where where is your brain, brain focused and pointed? You know, what are you what's your attention on at the moment? So as people listen to this and make, oh, what a fascinating person he is, or, you know, they may be thinking, oh, this is going on for a long time. What time? You know, all those things are state. Yeah? If they could be watching us, they go, well, how attractive she is. What a lovely background she has. All these things. Or why has she got a background like that? Those are all states. And the question is not, are we in a state? We are always in a state of mind or another. Always our neurology is pointing in one direction or another. The question is not, are we in a state? The question is, and this is really important, is the state we're in the most useful for what we're doing right now, right? So classic example again, if we're heading to the airport and we get stuck in a traffic jam, we call it a traffic jam, would you call it in Canada? Call it the same thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, so you get stuck in a traffic, bad traffic and you see the clock ticking and you're going to be late and you might miss your flight and they may not refund your cash. How do we feel? Well, how do you feel? If that happens, Kathy, how do you feel? Well, now I'm like, it is what it is. But Kathy, a few <laughs> years ago, would have been really frustrated. <laughs> so mo the most people, apart from the night and souls like you, Kathy, most people are, you know, pissed, frustrated, yes. angry, annoyed, stressed. Um, and the consequences of that are, of course, that they are more likely to make a wrong turn, crash the car, so argue with their partner at the beginning of the holiday, just get themselves into the wrong state. When we look at it, most people have had some experience like that, but we can see that that is not a useful state because the effects of that in that, in that particular context are just negative pretty much in every way. And in fact, there is an argument that there are very few places where getting stressed actually improves your outcomes. Very few, a few places, but not many. The second problem we have with humans, not only do we get into the wrong states or un unuseful states, depending on that particular context, 
is that most of us have no idea how to switch from one state to another. Yeah. So how many people would say, oh, it would be great if I could have a bit more time just, you know, being grateful for what is, you know, to see the clouds in the sky, hear the birds singing, be present. Well, actually, being in a traffic jam is the perfect time to do that. There's not much else you can do. And yet most people have no idea how to switch from being pissed and frustrated to uh, getting into a state of absolute presence and calm. If you could learn to do that, then life becomes a lot easier. And in fact, when you look at most of the areas in your life where things didn't go well, it wasn't the things going badly. It was your response to the way things turned out. So it's the state that you're in. Whatever your, the state you're in pretty much predicts how you respond to that event. And interestingly, from a kind of neuroscience point of view, the two people watching the same event and one person perceives it as a threat, which basically means, I don't think I've got the skills to deal with this. That's the threat response. The person next to them sees the same event and thinks, I do have the skills to deal with this. This is an opportunity, an adventure, a challenge, or something I can get my teeth into. So I'm not saying it's happy time, but they feel like they're competent to deal with it. They have, they have a different physiological response. They both produce adrenaline. The person who feels it as a threat will have an increase in peripheral blood pressure and feel stressed. And the person who feels competent will have a decrease in peripheral blood pressure, even though they produce the same amount of adrenaline. So their body responds differently to hormones depending on their perception which puts them in a better state to deal with it. So Marcus Aurelius, the great Roman orator, said you can judge the quality of a man by the quality of his thoughts. And that's really the same conversation. It's like, what state are you in? And a question I would ask you guys is, if you think about the last week, what percentage of the time were you in the optimal state, meaning the best state you could be for whatever you were doing? Talking to most people, it's about 10 to 20%. A lot of times people are in an okay state, but that's not an optimal state. That's an that's a kind of, you know, functioning just, just about okay. You, you don't really want a life like that. You want a life as much as possible. And when you're with the kids, you're with the kids, not going, how much longer is this going to last? Or you know, when you're focused, you're really focused. And so learning to really be able to switch into the state that's most useful is probably one of the most important things. Brilliant. Like mic drop and all that stuff. <laughs> And it works. I honestly, once I learned this technique, once I see it and I'm like, oh, right. And I like to see it as, you know, accidental versus intentional being in that state. Like some, sometimes we're accidentally in it, be it like, oh, well, I just got a good news. So it doesn't even matter with the traffic jam. I'm just loving this good news. Dr. Phil said yes to my interview. That's a good day, you know? And then there's the, the intentional of creating those situations. And that's what I'm hearing is to be really like mindful of it. And I love one of the things you said about in some of one of your talks on Clubhouse, it was about affirmations. And when do they really work? And then when there's like, you're just saying it like, life is good, but then, so let's go into words. And when do those words really become powerful versus the autopilot words? I remember way back when, as I was going through this personal journey, I used to call myself a self-sabotager, self-saboteur. That was like my label. I wear it. I wore the t-shirt for it. So talk about that, please, around that just, that the power of language and being mindful of it. Like yeah. I, I have ADHD or I am ADHD and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah. Okay. So there's lots. Of, so I we could talk three hours on this, but we're not going to. But let's start. Um, first thing you said, which is interesting, is intentionality versus uh, just the way it is. It's not as clean as that because if we spend a lot of time activating certain pathways, there's a process in your brain called neuroplasticity, which means the more you use a pathway, the stronger it gets. Right? So if you get used to being in a state of distracted, being in sluggish cognitive tempo and all the other things that they throw around as, start, as, as diagnostic criteria, or being stressed or anxious or depressed, then that will become easier to access and actually it will become super fast. It will just happen. And, and, and it's not quite true that it just happens because it is your brain that is occurring. In fact, I've written a book about this, a wave out here called the do which we may talk about another time so our brain is sometimes working against us in that it's got a predilection or a default for a particular state that we've been in a lot of the time so we may need to do a bit of rewiring but the good news about neuroplasticity is if you if you push a signal into the new state the new pathway that then becomes your default state if you practice it enough so that's the first thing second thing is Words are linked to states or words are linked to activation of neural pathways. Lots of really good research onto this. So they did some studies with fRMI scanners, which is where you see the activity of the brain. Uh, and they gave them a set of cards, playing cards with words on them. And some were related to groceries, like avocado, banana, um, wheat flour. Some were related to pain. Uh, and they shuffled them up randomly, gave them a card, said, read it, see what happens. They read it they scan the brain if they see the word pain the area that processes pain lights up okay, mm -hmm. showing that it's active if it's just a, a grocery card nothing much is seen so they've repeated this a number number of ways but what it what's clear is that words are linked to activation and states so now we've got an interesting problem in that if we talk about the word problem as i just did we'll be lighting up the neurology of problem if we talk about, and this happens a lot, when I say to people, what do you want? And they go, I just don't want to be stressed anymore. I'm fed up with being having those feelings of churning, my palms are sweaty, my dinner, and on, off they go. Neurologically, they have just lit that up. Mm -hmm. And there's two problems with this. Number one, they will feel awful because they will trigger neurology and neurotransmitters and, and hormones. But probably even more dangerously, they are rewiring their brain to make that easier next time. So then we come on to the whole issue of labels, which is another thing I could, I could talk about for a long time and keep it very brief. There's a big question about the value of labels. There is some value in going, this is me, this is who I am, and therefore we, this explains why I'm going to be this way and, and how we're going to interact. So that can be helpful as a signpost, but it can cut both ways in that then you can get, well, this is the entirety of me. This, is, this defines me. Mm -hmm. and sometimes that's not so useful so there was a study by Rosenham check it out it's a really interesting study where he got his friends to go who were psychologists to, to not wash to not uh, shave and to appear in hospital saying that I've got a, a, a voice in my head that says I feel hollow I feel empty if you have a voice in your head it's a sign of psychosis although in literature nobody had ever reported hollow or empty as a kind of thing but the plan was that they would present and they would be admitted into the psychiatric department. They did. And then as soon as they got to the psychiatric department, they said, uh, oh, it's gone now. Can I go home? Because yeah. uh, now I have no signs of psychosis. And of course, the staff went, no, you can't go home because you're psychotic. And they went, 
why? He said, well, you had voices in your head a few minutes ago. Well, I haven't got it now. Sure, we, I can go home. They went, no. And they took uh, the, the quickest was nine week, nine days to, to, to get out. The longest was about three or four weeks. Uh, they had no symptoms whatsoever the whole time. And it was at the time of, I don't know if you've seen the film One Fleur's the Cuckoo's Nest, but it was, mm-hmm. it was pretty rough in those, in those days. And everything they did was perceived by the staff as being a sign of mental illness. So they, they kept notes for the research and the staff notes said the patient engaged in writing type activities or obsessive note taking. So everything they did was framed as, you know, you have mental health issues. Interestingly, all the inmates of the asylum were absolutely certain that these new patients were not ill, not mentally ill. They thought they were probably under, undercover investigators, but they were absolutely certain these people didn't have any mental health problems, but the staff didn't. And there's more to the story as well, uh, which I'm not going to go into right now. But one of the things Rosenhan said was, I have to be really careful with labels. If somebody breaks a leg, you don't go, oh, they're a bit fragile, a bit of a breaker. You know, Someone has a cold, you go, oh, they're colder. Mm-hmm. But if somebody has mental health issues, they can be labeled as depressive very quickly. And then it's very difficult for them to get rid of it. So I think it raises some really interesting questions. You know, is this is that label of value or is it limiting? Is it is it helping you to move forwards in some way or does it get in the way? And that's a personal thing that people have to look at. I'm certainly not going to be telling people whether they should or shouldn't have those words, but it's something to look at that's very interesting. Yeah, and I, I, I think it, it's powerful because when I got my diagnosis, I saw it as an explanation of, oh, right. So when I interrupt people left, right, and center, that's just my impulsivity kicking in and, I, and my curiosity and my working memory that if I don't tell you right now, I'm going to forget. So let me interrupt you. But then I love this, this understanding of, okay, there's this wiring thing, and then there's my mindset and my language and this autopilot that I've been in for all these years in my 40 plus years. So then you can really understand which paths do you want to take and how many of these words are serving you. So doctor, last final thought, because I could talk to you forever, but I just wanted to capture this moment with you to just really plant the seeds around, here's another effective way of understanding your brain wiring with neuro-linguistic programming, with, with effective hypnotherapy to really go in there and, and introduce new language and just kind of fast track this whole transition. Cause I feel like it's like a crossroads. Oh, you now have ADHD and you're an adult. What the heck does that mean? And where do I go from there? So to my audience, this is another tool, another way of looking at it. And if it resonates, Dr. Phil has a whole bunch of amazing stuff. I was like, going through his YouTube channel. He has meditations in there. So good. I, I, I did a few last night. I'm like, so kumbayaing with your meditation there. So drphilparker.org is where all of his stuff is at. Before we wrap up though, to those late in life diagnosed, so they're in their 30s, 40s, 50s. So some of that mindset is already there, right? What would you say to them as their first step of this crossroads? Where would they go? I think one of the things to remember is that the, the, the label, the diagnosis is a useful starting place to say, this is what's going on at the moment. One of the things I always suggest, and I work with a lot of people who've got complex and chronic health issues. And one of the things they've often been left with is, this is who you are and, and no more can be done. You know, the, the, that's just the way it is, you know. And the first question I would ask 
is, oh, and this is because I am incredibly contrary and always have been, is I wonder where that isn't true. You know, so for instance, let's say you're somebody who goes, I, I can't focus. Mm-hmm. Instead, ask yourself, okay, where do I focus? Where am I good at that? Or if somebody goes, you know, I'm not able to deal with rejection, that thing you were talking about. Well, no, nobody particularly likes it, but there will be somewhere in your life where you're able to deal with, and, and, and rejection means basically what you hoped to happen didn't turn out that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So you kind of hoped that this project would go well, this interview would be good, this date, or whatever the thing was that somebody would approve or give a particular response. And that didn't happen because we're not all powerful and sometimes the world doesn't work out the way you want to. But there will be places in your life where, you know, let's say you said to your kid, come and give me a big hug right now. And they go, I'm too busy drawing, daddy. You know, you probably don't then lie on the floor and cry. You go, okay, or, you know, or they go, I'm just, I just really want to play with my friend. I'll be with you in a few minutes. Or, you know, th- there are lots of places in, in your life where, again, gaming is good. I know gaming is quite an interesting phenomenon. A lot of people yeah. with ADHD game and their focus is amazing when they do yeah. it. And one of my uh, supervisors did a whole project on it. Uh, you can play games. I mean, you can be killed and you don't get upset about it. You go, right, okay, I'm respawning. You know, so that's a time where, you know, the most extreme thing has happened. I mean, you haven't really died, obviously, but that game did. And you're like, okay, press the reset button and off we go. So it's like thinking, where for you do you have the state that is the that is a state that you don't feel you access very often? And then practice that, get in touch with that. Because what if you could bring some of those states, like the gaming state of being able to be okay with things going wrong? What if you brought that into the real world? If you're able to be focused when you're playing a game or when you're doing whatever your thing is, and you're able to bring it into the places where you really need it to, and you could practice that, how would life be? And really seeing this ability that if we can if we can access a state, so that we're going back to our traffic jam example, pretty much everyone who's been stressed in traffic jam at some point in their life has been calm. Yeah. So they, they have access to that state. So it's really about state access not do I ever have that state. Everybody pretty much has, you know, even the most focused people sometimes are unfocused. Mm -hmm. Even the most cool and relaxed people are sometimes stressed, sometimes. So it's it's about going, well, I do have these states. How can I learn? Treat it like a skill, like like a training, like a behavioral program and see what that brings you. I love it. That's so empowering that you're always at choice and you have access to it. I love it on so many levels. And folks, thank you, doctor. Folks, just what, what Dr. Phil just, just went over is just like the surface of, of what the whole um, NLP is all about. And that's why I haven't gotten my full certification in it because there's so much to it. So thank you, doctor, again, for giving us your gift of time and sharing some of these two, I think they're really important factors. If anything, do these two things or pay attention to these two things. I appreciate you. And until next time, folks, keep on shining. This episode was brought to you by my very first online lesson called Six Factors That Impact Your Productivity. I'm excited to be launching this and sharing this with you. So if you are struggling with productivity in your tasks and your day-to-day managing of the tasks, I encourage you to go into the show notes and click on the link on the mini course. It's about 20 minutes long where you get to learn 
the six factors that have a direct influence in the way you show up at work and the way you go about your tasks. It's about 20 minutes long. It comes with a worksheet and you can listen along and work along with it. And it's one of those tools that is really powerful, simple, but yet powerful and practical and put it into use right away. So head over to the show notes and get access to the free mini lesson from my website. See you there.